0: Welcome to China in Context, I'm Duncan Bartlett. The legal system in Hong Kong has become a political battleground. Many campaigners and protesters have been arrested, charged and sentenced to a term in jail. As they appear in court, some of them have seized the opportunity to criticise the Liaison Office, which represents the Chinese government in the city, crying out slogans in court such as freedom will blossom, or democracy will triumph and return. Despite censorship in the Chinese media, the international press has picked up on events, and this has had major implications for the way the rest of the world sees China. For example, the former British Foreign Secretary, Dominic Raab, said that the national security law in Hong Kong is being used by Beijing to dismantle civil society and stifle political dissent. joining us now to help us understand what's happening is Professor Steve Tsang, Director of the SOAS China Institute. Steve, welcome to China in Context. Can you start by explaining why the national security law is being applied in this way? Are people just being arrested at random or is there some sort of system at work here?
1: Well, the national security law for Hong Kong was introduced by the Chinese government in response to the massive protest movement that happened in Hong Kong in 2019. It was meant to send a very clear and powerful signals to people in Hong Kong that they must stop their protest or face the consequences. So there is a very strong inherent intention that it will have the effect of deterrence. Now whether the system in place is arbitrary or not, I think it's a different issue. We should not see that as binary between being arbitrary and systematic. It is not an oxymoron to describe something which is systematic with arbitrariness or even systematic arbitrary approach because the authorities are using it, applying the law in in their own ways quite systematically. But at the receiving end of the
0: application of the law, many will see that as being arbitrary. You mentioned that this was in response to protests that took place in Hong Kong. Those largely finished in 2019 and there weren't big protests during the uh, COVID lockdown. So why now, in the middle of 2021, are these cases going to court? Well, the law was only introduced
1: to Hong Kong in the summer of 2020. And an entire system, including a parallel court system and a special unit in the police force would have to be set up before they could actually systematically apply the law. So there is a natural time lag in terms of um, the system being put in place, the investigations being conducted, thousands of hours of videotapes being watched and such like before they can actually uh, effectively implement the law in a systematic and major way. I think that probably explains the timing of it, whether there is something very
0: spe- special and specific about
1: 2021.
0: I wonder if the Chinese Liaison Office is concerned about the negative publicity this is generating in relation to Hong Kong, at least in a lot of the international press, because in a way it just highlights the level of dissent, doesn't it? Well, the Chinese uh Central Liaison
1: Office is in a position similar to Chinese embassies in many different parts of the world. They are acting out first and foremost for the audience of one in Beijing who lives in Zhongnanhai and his name is Xi Jinping. How the rest of the world see their actions is less important than whether what they do and what they say will meet the approval of the Supreme Leader of China. And since it is clear to them that a uh, robust position must be taken in Hong Kong against any kind of dissent, which could be seen as potentially challenging the authority of the Communist Party of China, they must do so. What the rest of the world would like to think It's a different matter, it's something that they can contest, and they do contest very, very vigorously in simply uh, denouncing any criticism of Chinese policy in Hong Kong as unjustifiable and indefensible and outrageously based.
0: There's also a war of words here, I think, the international press say the protesters are pro-democracy campaigners. The Chinese media say that they're independence campaigners. Um, they're also being presented as foreign agents. If you were asking students at SOAS to write an essay on this topic, what sort of terms would you want them to use in their essay to describe these dissenters?
1: Well, it will depend on how that um, essay question is being framed and is being set to stimulate students to uh, address which particular aspect of these very complex issues involved. I can see all the range of words potentially being used. For example, I can see an essay question being set on the Chinese government claims that the democracy activists in Hong Kong uh, independence advocates discuss. Um, it is entirely reasonable that students should be exposed and indeed encouraged to look at the situation on the ground and draw up their own mind into what the nature of the protest movements in Hong Kong really is about.
0: You've touched on this just now and that's the international political element here. You said that the uh, liaison office in Hong Kong is primarily interested in how Beijing sees the situation. But we can't escape the fact that everybody else is watching. So there's been an angry reaction from the British Foreign Office. uh, And in response, the Chinese Ministry of Foreign Affairs says this is an example of interference in Hong Kong and China's internal affairs. I wonder if this is going to strengthen the argument that the dissenters, uh, let's call them that for now, these dissenters, these protesters are indeed foreign agents because otherwise, why would they be receiving all this vocal international political support?
1: Well, that is one way of looking at it. But in the case of the United Kingdom, there is in existence an international treaty between the UK and China, which is called the Sino-British Joint Declaration on the Future of Hong Kong, 1984, that was registered at the United Nations as, a international, as an international treaty. Now, the Chinese government claims that this is now just a historical document of no importance or relevance or applicability anymore. That's certainly not the case in UK law, and it is also not the case under normal interpretation of the international law. So the UK has a treaty obligation to speak up on the situation in Hong Kong, where the Chinese government does not accept that, reject that, and put forth its own narrative. But the Chinese government under the Communist Party has always worked on the basis that it has a monopoly of the truth, and of the narrative, and it is now just expanding that from a domestic context to an international context.
0: Well, for the second part of this podcast, I'd like to uh, shift the emphasis a little bit away from the uh, events in Hong Kong from a political perspective and look at them more as to how they're affecting the lives of citizens there. I'd like to share with you parts of an interview conducted recently with a young person in Hong Kong. This is in relation to social media. The question was asked about how they feel now about sharing ideas online on social media. And the young person replied, well, sharing ideas online on social media is not as easy as before, because I don't know where the red lines are. And if I said something which is regarded as wrong by the police, I might get into trouble. The person said, I hate self-censorship, so I no longer share my opinions online. Have you got any thoughts on that?
1: Regrettably, I think the concern articulated by this young person is shared by many in Hong Kong, and many are acting in the way that he or she is doing. Whether they are now the majority or not, I do not know. I am not aware of any surveys that has been conducted in order to assess what actual percentage of people in Hong Kong are exercising some element of self-censorship in some form of their articulation of views on social media and other platforms.
0: And just staying with that interview, there was also an exchange about the higher education sector in Hong Kong, which I, I just wanted to share with you. The question was asked, are teachers and lecturers changing the content of their courses? And the young person replied definitely they are they're avoiding material relating to political issues since they're afraid that some people may misinterpret their words and report them to the national security department of the hong kong police force and the interview went on so does that mean that students are adopting a different approach to study the reply came back students are avoiding political related topics also hong kong universities tend to be biased towards China in terms of teaching and management. So, for example, some universities have professors from China serving as principals or vice presidents, and they now plan to set up branches in Shenzhen or Beijing. And the national security education is on the curriculum. So, and this is I'm quoting from the interview, the bias towards China is getting worse. What are your thoughts on that? I think what the interview shows is the new reality in Hong
1: Kong. Um, What I, again, we have to be careful is that because of the nature of the subject, the sensitivity of it, no survey has been done and perhaps no survey can be done to have a completely accurate representation of how many people are doing what. My responses will be based on uh, anecdotal evidence rather than survey data. The reality is that we are seeing a range of responses in Hong Kong's education establishment. Uh, Some professors and lecturers are clearly avoiding some subjects. You can call that self censorship if you like. Um, Others are trying very hard to continue to keep to their existing or long-standing curriculum and contents of teaching, not everybody are doing the same thing. And likewise, student responses also span the whole spectrum of possible responses. There are some Hong Kong students who are still prepared to take risks and ask questions, and that can potentially put them in difficulties. Others are playing safe. And I don't think we should judge people wherever they are on that spectrum, whether the people who take the risk and potentially could end up in jail or the people who simply play safe in order to make sure that they do not end up in jail under the national security law. People have a right to choose. They are now in a very difficult situations in Hong Kong where there is no good choices.
0: Finally, Steve, can you sum up for us how you would guide students and other members of your academic team to approach this topic? What are the principles to follow when we're looking at this aspect of Chinese politics?
1: Well, I have the advantage of teaching at SOAS, University of London, in the United Kingdom even though the national security law of Hong Kong has global reach, which means that anybody anywhere in the world who speak on Hong Kong or write on Hong Kong or teach on Hong Kong are subject to the national security law, I have the luxury of being able to ignore that. And I and my colleagues are committed to academic independence and academic integrity. We will continue to teach and engage with our students in exactly the same way as we had done before. All that we are doing is to make sure that uh, appropriate measures are taken in order to reduce the risk that we expose our students and our staff to the reach of that law. But we are not going to be intimidated by any government whatsoever. That is not what British higher education is about. And that is certainly not the ethos of SOAS. We stand for academic integrity, academic independence, and the most vigorous standard of research and teaching period.
0: Thank you, Steve. That was Steve Sang, director of the SOAS China Institute. You can find out more about the Institute's work on the website, soas.ac.uk. That's S-M-A-S for SOAS. But for now, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team.